Welcome to Imperfect World. I am your host, Christopher Hobson. One of the aims of this series has been to share the process of thinking through and thinking with others. And so I've been engaging in dialogue with people who've been helping me as I try to better make sense of the world we find ourselves in, and specifically, better seeing and comprehending the parts played by digital technologies. Through all of this, my friend and colleague PC is someone who I've been constantly engaging with, and so it felt like it would be worthwhile to have a follow-up conversation with him and to see how our thinking has developed. The result was an open discussion which circled around some big themes. One was related to acceleration and speed, and whether the world is basically becoming too fast for humans. Another was problems of time and scale, and what type of historical registers we use and how they enable certain types of action, as well as thinking about what part there might be for hope and optimism. Issues we touch on range from social media, the war in Ukraine, climate change, and much more. L.M. Sarkasas, who I also spoke with in this series, recently observed that so much of modern society was built upon the interlocking presumptions of objective knowledge, impartial institutions, and neutral technology, as each in turn become increasingly implausible, rightly or wrongly, the modern world order comes apart. This observation nicely captures much of what PC and myself talk through here. For more information, please check my substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com, and make sure to subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series. I can be reached at info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. So, uh, I thought it would be good for us to have another conversation and uh, maybe develop further some of the themes we've been working on individually and collectively uh, and uh, kind of think through some issues together. And as a way of starting, I like kind of symmetry and points of connectivity. So given that our last conversation ended with Simone Vale, I thought I would begin this one with uh, another quote from her, but I, I'm not planning on making this uh, <laughs> Simone Vale best hits. Uh, but this, I think this captures uh, something important which I want to discuss. So uh, to quote her, uh, never has the individual been so completely delivered up to a blind collectivity and never have men been less capable, not only in terms of subordinating their actions to their thoughts, but even of thinking. Such terms as oppressors and oppressed, the idea of classes, all that sort of thing is near to losing all meaning. So obvious are the impotence and distress of all men in the face of the social machine which has become a machine for breaking hearts and crushing spirits, a machine for manufacturing irresponsibility, stupidity, corruption, slackness, and above all, dizziness. The reason for this painful state of affairs is perfectly clear. We are living in a world in which nothing is made to man's measure. Mm. There mm. exists a monstrous discrepancy between man's body, man's mind, and the, three, and, and the things which are present, time constitute the elements of human existence. Everything is in disequilibrium. 
Um, and obviously we could cut that many ways, but mm. this idea of uh, the world not being made to, met, to, to the measure of people, mm. I, I wanted to think about this specifically in relation to the idea of time and speed as something I have been thinking about is whether or not we're reaching a situation where the the way that digital technologies allow us to interact and communicate and receive information and to work is actually creating a kind of a speed or tempo which is not fit for humans. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's manifestly the case that it is. Um, and I certainly, um, I don't know how you feel now, but like I definitely feel like very strong intuitive sense of like a need to withdraw from a lot of the conventional digital platforms. Um, one of the things that I started doing at the beginning of the year was just withdrew from um, scrolling daily news, right? Um, partly that was just like I read um, Cal Newport's like a little bit basic and not amazing book on digital minimalism. But one of the things which stuck with me is that I would be better off. But in my heart, I knew it was because, first of all, that the so-called journalists didn't really know anything that I didn't know. So that there was this endless reticulation of things which were already known. So in a sense, there was no news. But on the other hand, like the pace of actual events, like so exceeded anybody's ability to kind of like know, let alone kind of like apprehend and fully comprehend them, that there seemed to be actually like this futility and even like deigning to know anymore. Um, and one of the things is that I've really noticed is that since I've stopped doing that or I just look at um, news media once a week now on, on Saturdays, um, that it, it has had like an effect of, I don't even know if this is a word, but like deparalyzing me. There was, there was a sense of um, something below despair, but uh, a sense that engagement with the pace of media at electronic speed was inducing a kind of um, something tantamount to paralysis in me. And it was actually like, it was like, it was kind of killing something in my heart, I guess. <laughs> um, and I think one of the, the, the contrary experiences was being so overtaken by events over the last two years with COVID and living through COVID and the, the various lockdowns here in Melbourne with three children and how amazing radio was. And so local radio, PBS and Triple R, certain programs on that uh, that took place at certain times of the week where people who actually lived in the city we share would like call an SMS in um, and say how much the radio programs were helping kind of like really save them in a lot of ways. So that there's something about the kind of the pace uh, and the unfolding of radio as something which still has to happen in real time. We can't scrub through radio. Um, we probably would try if we could. Um, that it unfolded like has to unfold in real time in in a given community between concrete individuals who are actually like really sharing a city um and the ups and downs of the city with one another which was conversely extremely grounding um yeah which really does show me that there is i think for me these are things are always subjective but the pace of news media and especially um the pace of the way that social media is reticulated on twitter um i i feel a sense of kind of like vertigo just looking at twitter um, I don't understand how people remain engaged in it and and don't go mad. Yeah, I. It strikes me one of the real challenges is this flood of 
information, uh, which then makes it difficult to distinguish. Like everything becomes important. Yeah. And in the process, nothing becomes important. Mm, mm. And so you have this, this pace of, uh, I have to see what, you know, what's the latest update with COVID, what's the latest update uh, with geopolitics. And, but in the process, uh, as you're saying, there's this question of, of actually how much new information can you actually yeah. uh, receive in, 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 in doing so. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, an example I, I think of with this was, I remember when the Fukushima nuclear accident happened mm-hmm. and there was a few days afterwards uh, where we were staying at home and there was a very genuine uh, risk and an even greater fear of the possibility of the, the uh, meltdowns uh, getting out of control and the possibility of uh, serious radiation reaching Tokyo. And I remember there was just one day where I was just pressing refresh on the browser the whole day, trying to get the latest update with, you know, what was happening. And um, it, it put me in a com- like my it completely destroyed my brain right because yeah. i became so paralyzed by 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 kind of uh, this sense of, of dread and fear um and likewise with covert or with with um, the current conflict there's this sense of you know you must know what's happening right but then uh realistically we don't necessarily need to know that much but also it's not even necessarily possible to actually mm-hmm. um, uh, make sense of everything that you're being mm-hmm. given. Um, and so something I've been exploring in some of the other conversations is this assumption that more data leads to more truth. Mm-hmm. So with mm-hmm. more data points, with being able to uh, compile more data about how we're interacting and how we're behaving, this also gives us a better um you know, we can know the world better and know ourselves and, and know our interactions better uh, yeah. in, in the same way, a kind of assumption that if we have more information or we have more news, we can understand uh, what, what is, what is going on better. Um, and I think, I'm, but I th- sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm reminded a lot. Um, it's one of those great quotes that has withstood a few decades of criticism that in an, early, relatively speaking, and influential writing on conspiracy theories, Frederick Jamison talked about conspiracy theories as an attempt to cognitively map the impossible totality of the world system. Um, And I think that in our own ways, we're all involved in that. Um, And that it's very easy to see when you think about that, the, the seductions of the false concreteness of any particular very strong narrative, which any given conspiracy theory is offering. Um, so I think, you know, all of us are involved in this particular process, like this is the impossible totality of this world system, nonetheless, the necessity of performing some kind of cognitive mapping in order to reorient, um, past, present and future, um, what's inside me, what's around me, all of these different things is just a very fundamental aspect of trying to apprehend and, um, um, make sense of the world and, and bestow on it some kind of a durable 
meaningless, I think. Well, I think this is why, you know, Stigler pointed towards uh, the way that this excess of data was, was actually leading to a position of nihilism. Absolutely, yeah. And so actually this excess of data does not help us better understand and know the world in a way it actually impedes us making making sense uh, and it, it also offers a, a, a kind of impossible promise of mm. full knowability or full control and you know maybe to to come to your example of conspiracy theories it strikes me that this is would be one explanation for why you have an increasing turn or increasing support of conspiracy theories it is not simply about the way that uh you know you have bubbles with social media and you have these um kind of silos where you're just having the same views uh but also it provides uh, a frame of of meaning and it offers the promise of things being comprehensible uh, which it becomes very alluring in a world uh, without meaning yeah well the world is not a story isn't it and yet we make stories of the world and try to transform the world back into a story um, usually with some sort of a group who agrees with us about what the correct story of the world is um, and a set of idols that we generate about, you know, who are the heroes and who are the villains and how we as the in-group have access to the truth about what the true story is and how everyone else is wrong. But, yeah, the world isn't a story, is it? It's the trouble with complexity. <laughs> it's non-linear. Yeah. Well, but then but then it strikes me that the the kind of the inverse position of saying everything is complex Yes, and yeah. we can't make sense of this, and it's just, it just is, and it's just a complete mess, and there's no meaning. Uh, also, I I find not not completely convincing. And last year I was revisiting uh, Camus, and then what what really I just find so powerful about his his work is. He, he looks at the worlds and very firmly reaches the conclusion that there is no higher power or higher meaning, but that doesn't like that, that, that can't actually prevent you from continuing to act as if there, yes. there, there must be some type of purpose or, or, or meaning. Uh, even if there is no meaning in the end and still in post-war France as well, like, definitely the friend and antagonist of of Camus and Sartre, Raymond Aron. You know, just the, the sense in which he sort of said as a public figure, writing in the figure, et cetera, it was very absolutely important for him to take a position on certain public issues um, and elucidate that position. As we were talking about these things, I was thinking about the power of synthesis um, and the appeal of a creature at the moment like Adam Tooze. Um, who is this kind of like superb synthesis and in a way a generalist in a world where the entire reward structure of the division of labor goes to the specialist. Um, but I remember very distinctly being it because I was thinking, as you were saying about that sort of like, we need more data. 
um, being at a transport and cycling conference in Amsterdam in 2018. And this kind of inability of the two hemispheres to, to speak to one another um, to the point where like all of the data-driven people, they had extraordinarily precise data, but they weren't really able to kind of give it a sense or a meaning. Um, and on the contrary, the theoretically inclined people were neither willing nor able to really engage with the substance of the data. So I feel like um, we, we, we're stuck in this world of kind of like instrumentality and specialization with a lot of these different things. Nonetheless, what's really needed is this work of synthesis. Nonetheless, in order to actually achieve that level of synthesis, and TUS is a good example here, you do actually really have to get a handle on um, number sets at the moment. So um, our, our kind of innumeracy, you know, is really kind of wrecking all of us in a lot of ways. But it was very clear that one of the refrains at the conference was like, we need more data. And when confronting, when confronted with the problem, like the pragmatic problem of gridlock in the context of urbanisation and the, the, the broader ecological problem of like uh, ecological destruction, climate change, you name it, whatever, I feel like no, we actually we don't need we don't need to gather more data. It's pretty clear what's happening. That there's actually the the paralysis comes in terms of of action, um, and there's also an, an ethical paralysis where people perhaps individually know very well what's going on and what's terribly wrong with it. Um, but there's both a sense of an inability to act, I think, from an in, uh, individual level paralysis, and also there's a collective action problem, which we all know, right? Um, which is this is where it gets very difficult for me. Well, I think there are a few themes there. It strikes me one issue comes down to, well, I mean, what, what tools we use to, to, to know and do certain, certain things and the whole, you know, the, the, the basic critique of different forms of positivist social science uh, for me ultimately still holds considerable weight and doesn't need to actually be greatly updated like very very simply there there are a certain parts of, of of the world and of human experience which cannot be captured or explained yeah. using um quote unquote objective techniques and think, thinking that we can understand and know and potentially shape or control mm. uh, the social world in in the way that that, that we have the natural world mm. uh, it just it, it does, it's, it's, it's it's not fully convincing yeah um, and there's I think there's I mean there's, there's almost a bit of a parallel with some of the way that uh, big data works, right? So with big data, you uh, use data points which are possible to generate, with, which are often approximations of reality, and then using um, all the data you compile, you kind of end up with a composite sketch of uh, a certain, certain set of processes, and then mm. that's in theory or in practice reveals something about what is happening. And, but it's really about uh, approximations. And mm. yeah, in the same way, um, using social scientific methods, you can actually 
uh, approximates often quite a good um, understanding of, of what is happening to a certain extent. Right? Mm, um, mm. But like w- whether it's with 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 um, the social world or uh, using big data or whatever, it strikes me that the problem always comes from the remainder, right? And when you take an approximation for uh, the whole and the image that I've been thinking of is an appropriate technological one, but I, I've been feeling like, you know, people of our generation will, will, will understand this analogy, but photocopying uh, mm. something and then faxing that photocopy mm. and then taking the fax where the original is now two levels of degraded and then the fax really degrades the quality quite a bit. Mm. And then photocopying that fax and then faxing the photocopy and um, basically ending up with a very low-res version of the world. So it, it does, um, it, you know, it does provide a, a, a kind of a picture of a um, set of processes and what's happening, but it's so degraded from all these approximations yeah, yeah. that the image you get is one which is, is, is quite, you know, you miss quite a lot from the actual original copy before it started being replicated. 20 or so years ago, though, like one of my small hobbies was like using, because machine translation was not yet very good, um, but you could start with a poem and translate it back and forth between, say, French and English. And the machine translation was so bad that if you kept reiterating the translation back in, eventually new meanings would start to pop out and quite often you'd end up with something beautiful by the 10th iteration, which was nothing like um, where we started with. Um, and that certain words and phrases would actually send the machine translation off on these very interesting um, nonlinear paths. It's in, in a sense like unfortunate that um, as, as this machine translation has become better, that um, it's, it's become less creative. But I was thinking a little bit though about, um, you know, one of the masters of, of big data and certainly like one of the big hoovers of big data being Google. Um, one of the things which really strikes me is like um, search is extraordinarily powerful. Um, and for me, like still as a user of a lot of Apple's products, like, you know, Apple's search is really terrible <laughs> compared to Google's. But that's only because like Google search is like bordering on magical now. But one of the things which has really interested me is that in like a number of the different things which I've tried to take a bit of a closer look at over the last several years, there was on the surface of the internet sufficient data in order to kind of reconstruct an accurate enough picture of most likely what probably happened. But one of the things that I noticed was that like there wasn't the kind of ambient curiosity among most communities and most publics, like there wasn't really a wish to know. So sometimes one of the things which is really noticeable to me is that there's a lack of that kind of like attuned, sharp curiosity, which is really missing about things. Um, And that's certainly like in the case of, um, you know, the dockless bike scheme, O-Bike, what I looked at, it wasn't that there was anything particularly secret or nefarious about what was going on. It was mostly the fact that there weren't actually any journalists who were doing, you know, when I say investigative work, I mean, like most people weren't looking things up using Google, not even looking on the surface of the internet. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this now, but um, certainly among a lot of my undergraduates, it seems to be that people are no longer in the habit of using um, the web (laughs) and by extension um, don't really use Google search that much anymore. So, which is something I really find quite extraordinary. So 
we, we do actually have this affordance of extraordinary big data and Google's uh, alongside maps, I, I think, you know, um, the power of search that Google has managed to provide us is like, is like almost worth the price of surveillance capitalism. Um, but then on the other hand, like as an affordance, it's extraordinarily, it strikes me underutilized and that there's many things in our world and our community, which we could know, we, we could cognitively map the impossible totality of the world system with Google as our faithful assistant, yet most people don't care to. And that's one of the things which I guess has really struck me about the past decade, that precisely in this decade where search became magical, fewer and fewer people are curious enough to just look something up and check. Yeah, there's there's a question of whether these type of um, conveniences then generate uh, a degree of passiveness or kind of over time maybe create a different way of engaging with them in so far as the assumption is that well we can search for something if we kind of need to but then uh, subsequently decide that that's not necessary and we end up kind of not actually we, we get into habits where we, we simply don't care to, to check or to kind of look. Uh, mm. But it's strange. We don't have time. We don't have time to check. We don't make time to check. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, there's, uh, this is also, I think, connects to the way that coming back to, to the Simone Vey quote at the beginning, one of the ways that uh, digital technologies are now not really made to match humans measure is mm. there are so many points of input and distraction. And so uh, I think also what happens is, is, is so often it's um, you become distracted from the task that you set out to do. Absolutely, yeah. It's a bit, you know, like when you, when you, when you walk uh, through one of the drinking streets in, in Shinjuku, and you have all the touts trying to pull you into their, into their, into their bar or restaurant. So you're, you know, you're looking left and right, and you get dragged into one place or whatever. Mm. It's kind of a little bit like that. So I, I find there's this process of you go, you go to do to search for X. Mm. but then you receive an email and then you start reading that email and then you start checking Twitter and then someone sends you a message. And actually to to make this more precise, something that Mm, I've been thinking quite a lot about is I feel a lot of the discussions which are around how digital medias uh, impact our attention. Yep. I feel there is an underweighting of focus on uh, direct messaging apps. And we we tend to talk primarily in terms of social media and also in terms of email. But I've been thinking a lot about the consequences of um, messaging apps Mm -hmm. and the kind of dynamics these generate both uh, in terms of impact on one's attention 
but then also the way that they then change the dynamics and expectations of interactions with mm. with others availability and responsiveness especially yeah exactly yeah. And, yeah. and and the way for instance that apps will have message read and oh, yeah. that that message read kind, yeah, yeah, of, yeah. kind of becomes like a, a social time bomb <laughs> mm. right um, and so there's a sense of uh, I have to respond within a certain type of time frame or mm-hmm. this will generate will ramify yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of these different things. I think um, absolutely, I mean, and it was it's so interesting to me that like with, you know, um, traditional SMS that it didn't have this affordance built into it um, and that I'm not sure about Android now, but, you know, iMessage has like programmed it back in so that if both, both, of, the, both of the iOS users have it activated on their system and you're, you're chatting with someone who's also an iPhone user, we now have this same bloody problem that we, <laughs> we have embedded into Signal and Telegram and everything else, which is when you, you know very well um, when a person has read things. Um, it's also, I think, um, uh, one-to-one instant messaging and also group messaging also has its own dynamics. Um, and then, you know, one also has to think about like, um, work groups, you know, we have someone, um, we, unfortunately we use teams at work. Um, so those, those have their own dynamics. Then there's informal work group chats that very often are on WhatsApp, um, which I personally refuse to participate in. Um, but Increasingly, I know with um, party politics um, in most of the Anglo-capitalist countries, and I'm presuming I'm presuming it's a global phenomena. Much of the actual argy bargy of like everyday factional work um, is taking place on a lot of these group chats on Signal and Telegram and WhatsApp, you know, um, which has like huge and as yet not really clearly known ramifications for for how politics is done every day. I think one of the things that I really noticed, though, is that um, it tends to really re-entrench um, patterns of reactivity um, and people kind of um, actually what's Gia Tolentino's got, uh, she's got a good phrasing here, which I'll go and I'll, I'll look it up on Google in just a second for you, Chris. Um, but one of the things is that, you know, people tend to overestimate their own opinions and it really destroys any sense of scale. So I think that really brings us, I think, perhaps full, full circle back to Simone Vale. And certainly a lot of the humanist critiques of techniques from the 1970s that both you and I have been increasingly interested in, um, which is to say that by this stage, like, you know, the system or the machine, whatever you want to call it, is fundamentally not operating at, at human scale and not fit for, not fit for <laughs> the, 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 trousers are, the trousers are enormous. They're far too large for us. So we can't possibly fit in these things. So that the, there's something fundamentally important about scale as well as pace that's going on here. Mm. Um, to give you like, I think a concrete example recently, um, the complete saturation of my podcast feeds with Ukraine things for like three weeks. Um, then the week of the Academy Affairs when Will Smith, you know, like that whole thing, Ukraine just like went away for a week because the, inter- the, the the Western internet could only care about Will Smith, but only for a week or so. Um, but there the, the, the seemed to be, at least on the level of discourse, a complete interruption, like a, a cessation in conflict <laughs> for a week while, while discourse sorted through Will Smith, which is a, a very, very strange. I think if you were to jump in a time machine and go back 20 years ago to 2002 and to try to explain how this was a thing and this could be actually a preoccupation of like hundreds of millions of people, you might have your work cut out for you. 
Yeah, I mean, this connects to this uh, reworking of a line from a rent which I've been using. Which, you know, everything is serious and, and nothing matters. Mm. And I feel this is very much connected to the yeah. I think the the way that there is this um, by being given so much information and news, it, it becomes very flat. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. so the, and so then yeah, the conflict in the in in, in the Ukraine and uh, the the something happening at the Oscars becomes both uh, podcast material mm-hmm. and they basically, when they're inputted, they become the same thing. And for uh, people engaging with these issues, they tend to engage with them in the same way. Yes, absolutely. Right? And yeah. so for most people, they are as distanced from what's happening in the Ukraine are as they are distanced from celebrities in Hollywood. Mm. And, and so whatever it is becomes just a point of input, something which appears on their feed or in their news. Um, and yeah, so it kind of gets, it gets really flattened out and mm. to, to connect this to what you were saying before about thinking about some of the ramifications for, say, the way that more and more uh, people involved with politics are communicating through uh, messaging apps. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it strikes me that when you kind of put these two things together um, and you're thinking about not just only in terms of politics but how people are engaging with each other, uh, it, it's been reminding me a little bit. I'm going to keep making technological metaphors, but mm-hmm. you know, one of these old old uh, uh, clothes dryers, when it gets really going, it starts going really really fast and rattling mm. and making a lot of noise, and it feels like it's about to blow up, and it just kind of starts spinning round and round and round. Yeah, and so for instance, with uh the beginning of the Ukrainian conflict, you have uh, something I'm like uh, myself and I think other international relations scholars are trying to, to make sense of is you had this really weird dynamic, especially and effectively over the course of a weekend where there was so much outrage within Western publics, which was very much, driven and mediated and shaped by an incredibly um, effective uh, social media campaign Mm -hmm. by um, pro-Ukrainian people and groups Mm. reflecting very genuine and real uh, problems, which kind of pushed... uh, Western governments to 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 institute a really uh, drastic and um, quite significant set of economic sanctions, which mm. um, are more appropriately thought of as economic warfare mm-hmm, against mm-hmm. a nuclear power, mm. um, which 
appear to have gone considerably further than what was previously being uh, being considered. And but then you can't unring that bell, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think there are these kind of dynamics where there's this kind of speed and momentum which pushes. Yes. Um, either individuals or groups or societal discourse, it pushes things in a direction where you end up through momentum in a position where nobody really actually wanted or necessarily thought about. Mm, mm, mm. And so in a really short space of time, it's kind of like, all right, it looks like we're, you know, we're having an economic war with Russia. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I, right. guess, I guess that's what we want. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, I've, yeah, I've just been really uh, the the given. Uh, you know, I do a lot of work on on conflict, uh, and this has been something which has really struck me. Is that yes. I think a lot of people who who work on these issues uh, were perhaps not so surprised that Russia invaded. Uh, mm. They they were surprised with um, how poorly Russia has performed. Mm. Um, but I think the way you've had this completely strange type of asymmetric warfare. Mm. taking place and what i mean by that is actually a situation where you have uh russia as the more powerful material force um and Mm. they haven't even necessarily been that successful in that regard Mm. Mm. but then ukraine completely dominating the information space yeah 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 uh and it's 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 kind of very tempting to engage in kind of whataboutism kind of arguments in terms of thinking about well why is the world so concerned about the Ukraine and hasn't paid any attention to the war in Yemen and things like yep. that. Yeah. Yeah. And like most whataboutisms, there's a there's a kernel of truth there. Absolutely. But yeah. it strikes me there's also a dimension of the Ukraine has been able to so powerfully mobilize mm. the tools which work in the current socio-technical mm. moment mm. to mobilize support and agency around their objectives. And I can give you, um, just to give you a like mobilization, like you've probably got, you, you have Vox as well. You know, the, the Vox apps icon has now come up with Ukrainian colors, right? For how long? <laughs> yeah. um, this is a really interesting thing with the way that these things like pop up and, and ramify across different scales. One of the things that um, I've really, you know, when I was in looking at um, Lumen Systems Theory in, in some detail several years ago, um, you know, part of where he generates his systems theory from is the second order cybernetics of Heinz von Forster. And Heinz von Forster makes a fundamental distinction between trivial and non-trivial machines. So the paradigm of a trivial machine would be like a Coke machine, right? Um, which, you know, as, as a resident of Japan like yourself, I don't need to explain that. But the, the, essential, the essential thing is like, you know, you put your coin in, you press the button, out pops the, the Coke, and there's a complete alignment between cause and effect there. 
Um, I think, you know, the internet and geopolitical conflict in the 21st century is a completely non-trivial event. You know, all of these operations that happen are recursive, which means the outputs of every operation become the inputs for the next operation. And that's bound to drift in lots of really, really strange um, and, and interesting, but also horrendous, but largely like absolutely unpredictable ways. Absolutely unpredictable. For Putin um, and for Ukraine uh, and for the people of Russia and for everybody else. So, so there's, there is a profound um, non-knowledge, which is at the heart of contemporary action and the way that it ramifies, um, which is something which is, I feel a sense of, um, how can I say, I'm trying to develop, what's a, what's a sense that one has of simultaneously um, humility and terror? <laughs> Some what? combination of those two affects, if we can put it. I'm sure the Germans have a compound noun for it. I mean, to be, to, 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 to maybe make it a little bit more, or to develop a bit further, perhaps there's a situation of a heightened sense of insufficiency. Mm. And so that the way the having search and having all the information available through the internet and the promise that, you know, through, through big data, we can identify all these patterns and trends and so on. This gives us the hope or maybe even a kind of expectation that we should be able to yeah. understand or predict what is going on. Mm. Uh, and so then when reality consistently fails to match with our models and predictions and expectations, yeah. mm -hmm. um, we, we struggle to uh, reconcile ourselves with that. Like it's co like commencing from a position of the world is not knowable and not mm. controllable. And, you know, if we go back to, uh, you know, a, a religious cosmos. Yes. Right. That, we must trust in, in, in the will of a higher power and that, mm, that, mm. that like we cannot see and we cannot know. This is a very different starting point from what well, we can know and the information is there and mm. we can actually estimate and have confidence that certain things are going to happen. But then when reality again surprises us, we don't necessarily have the like the, the dissonance is, is too strong. Absolutely. And it takes so much, like mentally speaking, it takes so much more time to kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to recollect um, and re-script and like re-narrate what happened to me over the past two years and what happened to me in the past 10 years. I think partly just having three kids in sleep deprivation, but certainly in the past two years with the pandemic, you can really be ambushed by an event, you know, and then completely be overtaken and overwhelmed by it for years, you know. Grief is a similar and ordinary human process where something happens to you and it just continues to ramify in all these different ways. Um, but events kind of nonetheless continue to exceed us. I was thinking a little bit, and I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry to introduce um, Thucydides to an international relations scholar because it's such a sort of shibboleth, but there's that really great um, quote which I've shared from you, uh, with you before by Guy Debord in Comments on the Society of Spectacle where basically he sort of contrasts this world of Thucydides as a world of history where like Thucydides writings are, you know, like, um, uh, um, uh, 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 how can I say, a gift to all mankind forever. No, it's a bit, sorry, it's a better phrasing in the translation. Whereas this contemporary in this, in what 
Debord describes as a society of spectacle, we see a continual absorption and reabsorption in novelty. And as a result of this continual demand for an absorption in novelty, we end up with uh, uh, um, an eternity of noisy insignificance is the phrase that he, he, he lands on there. So what I'm really interested in here especially is noticing that somebody like Vladimir Putin appears, at least if what Masha Gerson says is correct, to be dealing with a different temporality like a different sense of uh, Ruski Mir, this Russian world, which fits into like a larger and longer modernity. And that, that, that gives him a fundamentally different orientation, which enables action in a different way. You know, I mean, this is a guy who thinks Ivan the Terrible was fantastic, right? So we're dealing with this particular, but how it is that there's a degree of personalism whereby as far as we know, and we don't know very much, we have one person with a certain narrative about Russia and the world making decisions which impact like literally hundreds of millions of people and could potentially draw the whole world into a conflict. I'm really interested as well that quite conspicuously, Al-Qaeda shared a similar longer narrative of modernity, which was contrary to the categories of the North Atlantic West. Um, and we also see this with a number of the different um, far-right attacks. Like if you look um, at Anders Breivik's manifesto, which is, you know, mostly just kind of copy-pasted and reticulated from the internet, the whole Eurabia thesis, which has been so popular for the European far right over the past um, over the past ten years or so, ten years and more, also articulates this much kind of longer temporality of modernity. So maybe <laughs> I'm not saying that um, the the answer to this is to be a little bit more like Vladimir Putin and um, and Al Qaeda, but there certainly is a sense of empowerment in being part of like a longer and larger historical and cultural process. I think, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has also managed to articulate this in a way and, you know, getting back to us, like hitting refresh on our phones, continually sort of like demanding to, to know what's going on um, as if news media can tell us. Maybe this also tells us the extent to which we've been seduced and captured by um, this need for novelty and how in the absence of a broader historical narrative, we're no longer capable of making sense of the world um, as it in fact exists. Yeah, and... Sooner or later, we always end up back at Adam Curtis. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just wrote down when you were talking the terror of the new, and I feel yeah. like I feel like that must be a hidden Adam Curtis documentary, which he hasn't, which he hasn't put online. Well, it's interesting if you look at the past twenty years of Curtis's documentaries. Um, you know, like if we start to the early 2000s uh, with the power of nightmares, you know, he does count, he, he counterpoises these two groups, you know, Al-Qaeda and the neocons, who have this incredibly powerful story about how the world exists. And it does enable very decisive geopolitical action with like terrible, fucking terrible consequences. Like if I think back at the past 20 years in the global war on terror, like what a stupendous waste of time, effort, money. And anyway, um, in, on the contrary, though, if we look at um, Curtis's work in over the past decade, you know, he has uh, intentionally and reflexively started to reintegrate the logic of conspiracy theories as an, an associationist logic, which denies coincidence and insists that everything's connected in a way which we could understand as causal if we were capable of understanding it. Moreover, I don't think it's entirely coincidental, and I wish I could find it again, but before WikiLeaks, um, Julian Assange published his own social theory and his theory of power was a conspiracy theory of power for precisely the same reason. So 
I think we do have this sort of like, there's a strong sense of like, and Curtis is a, another great synthesis, which, you know, I think speaks to the demand for his works and his popularity alongside Adam Tooze, because he is actually capable of cognitively mapping the impossible totality of the world system, you know, in a way, um, you know, at, at the, at the expense of uh, a level of precision and detail, like, you know, the more recent Curtis stories themselves sit, so, sit on the line of conspiracy theories themselves, which they play with reflexively, but there's always this point at which, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is going to be a really nasty mashing together, but go for it. With with the people that you are talking about, whether it is uh, Adam Curtis, Tooze, or she, or Putin, right? So they're all, you know, using certain techniques to create a story or sense of meaning. Mm. in a context where there is this uh, overloading of, and there's, yeah, to come back to what we're talking about, like an inhumane amount of data and inputs. And going back to, to, you know, to the war on terror uh, point and thinking about Benjamin Barber's argument about, um, what was this? Uh, what was this horrible expression? G- was it Mick? Uh, oh, jihad, no, jihad versus Jihad versus Mick World. world. Uh, <laughs> right, um, but you know he was making a point there that basically global the process the forces of globalization were mm. were you know creating all this dissolution and breakdown in in kind of patterns of of work and life, which yeah. was creating space for these um, extremist reactions and extremist kind of story making, you can perhaps think about the the next step of that being not so much about globalization, but being mm. about the, the way that uh, with the internet and social media and so on, the next step of that being the amplification and acceleration mm. of communication Mm, mm, mm. the overloading people's cognitive capacities and meaning-making capacities, mm. which in turn leads to um, searches for uh, synthesis and, and, and meaning-making. And to, 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 to also then come back to your points about... Uh, Thucydides or like a longer historical view. It this is what I struggle with a lot is uh, how to then recognize the way that there are these common patterns or dynamics within a kind of a larger historical time frame while then trying to demarcate actually what is distinctive or what is new. Because um, it's like, for instance, the sense of vertigo that you feel and, and I feel and many of us feel that we come, you know, to what extent would have people felt the same shortly mm. after the advent of the presses where there was yeah. suddenly this flooding of mm. books? Would that have been the same sense of vertigo and acceleration? Mm. Or, mm. or are we actually dealing with something which is, um, you know, fundamentally different, and and I do 
sort of feel like that the, the this acceler I think acceleration is is really at the heart of something which is quite distinct about yes where the world has developed over the last couple of decades and how that then plays out in terms of how we think and engage it strikes me that there might be something distinctive there i think there really is um i i i mentioned last time we had a chat that i was reading through richard sennett's the corrosion of character and it's interesting that for him that's like about a breakdown of a pattern of stable work between um keynesianism in north america and the kind of what we might call maybe we can call it now the midpoint of neoliberalism um, in the late 1990s, if it is over now, I don't know, it's too soon to say. Um, and um, I think one of the things which is really interesting um, about that is that if we look back to the 1960s and 70s, and this is in other works that I've read around institutional psychology and institutional sociology, institutions were still profoundly dysfunction, uh, dysfunctional, didn't meet people's needs, uh, didn't carry people's lives as they ought to, were extremely disappointing, but in different and kind of spatiotemporally and culturally patterned ways, right? So they were just shit in a different way. But one of the big distinctions is that, um, and I'm drawing on one particular study which has influenced me a lot on nursing service in the 1960s, is that the institution itself was a kind of shock absor absorber. And specifically how this worked is by diffusing responsibility for, for wrongdoing and mishaps back into the institution and sparing the individual of bearing alone the full responsibility for mishaps and indeed for carrying their own life. So there was a sense of collectivity and weeness that was held together by the institution. What you see in the kind of case studies that Senate has by the, by the late 90s, we can see this very clearly, is like individuals are themselves overburdened. So we have this kind of manifestation of an overburdened self where people really do feel that for the most important things, they're on their own. Maybe they have their family, and maybe they have their friends or in, you know, Australian cultural parlance, their mates. But aside from that, overburdened individuals face a terrifyingly complex world alone. Um, and then usually given the cultural choice of like hitting refresh and letting news media tell them what's going on or being seduced by the, um, the comforting false concreteness of a strong narrative, which tells them a strong story about how the world is, their place in it, what it all means and therefore how they can be and how they can act but at the cost of truth. <laughs> and what I'm also really interested in now for us is whether we can have the courage, if you will, to move beyond either um, a, a naive optimism um, or a too easy and paralyzing pessimism, you know? Um, so the, the, the pat pessimism, and I, I, I'm talking, I think specifically like um, 1970s, um, Eric Fromm has got this great phrase, the ambiguity of hope. Um, based in a rational faith um, that good things could still happen and that both optimism is too simple because it doesn't account for the complexities and ambiguities and ambivalences of the world. But likewise, you know, pessimism only um, provides an alibi for all of people's worst behaviour um, and lets individuals off the hook, that we're on the, we're on the hook, in fact, and that it is, in fact, also we who have to change, you know, how we think and how we act in the world. So, again, we're implicated. I think that's really the choice. We can either try to be implicated and, and, and try to live the courage of that, which is a very, very difficult thing to do, especially if we already are overburdened individuals who are dealing with the vicissitudes of just trying to like survive in our particular jobs and with our families and all of our given commitments. Um, or we can subscribe to, you know, the, the false comforts of this uh, 
uh, the false concreteness of a strong narrative and get absorbed in whatever totality that is, whether that's, you know, the nation or Ruskimir or Eurabia or anything else, you know. Um, this is really the situation we find ourselves in, I find, I think. Well, the, the from position, I think, is very similar to uh, my favourite Gramsci quote. And opti- what is it? Um, opt- optimism of the, uh, what is it? Wait. Optimism of the, wait, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the... <laughs> I always get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got it it wrong. But, you know, basically that from an intellectual perspective, you have to be pessimistic. Yes. But from a kind of a humanist perspective, you have to be optimistic, right? Correct, Um, yeah. I mean, a a more modern rendition of that, which is one I often use and think about, is uh, Zizek. Zizek, uh, during the... uh, 2015 the peak of the refugee crisis Mm. in europe he said you know we need to recognize that there is a light at the end of the tunnel but that light is a truck coming towards us oh absolutely yeah (laughs) um and so hope is an interesting one because there i'm also sort of interested in this idea that that we have to sort of have some sense of, of, of hope of things can be can can be different and to kind of hold on to that mm, mm. but you know you see you, spe- you see this especially i would say in in some of the discourse around uh climate change mm. that actually hope is an impediment and instead we should abandon all hope and mm. um actually hope is actually kind of forestalls action because it projects into the future Mm. things Mm. that need to be done now yes and so there's this question of whether hope is an alibi Mm. or a resource yes 100 percent um i've actually watched a friend who um, works in the climate space go through um, three years of like neurosis, rage and grief, you know. Um, it was a full Kubler-Ross grief cycle, I think. <laughs> a denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and now acceptance. Um, but now they continue to work in that space with a, a degree of kind of um, acceptance, which I'm, I find really, um, it's been fascinating to see um, his progress through all of these different things, all of which, all of which, let's say, are rational. Um, so you know, the the denial at least has. It's, you, you, we can, if we go through the Kubler Ross thing, the denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, and, and acceptance. They all have. We have would have very good reasons to inhabit all of those different states for a very long time, given what's going on. But as someone who continues to work and is able to continue to work. I think it's really interesting there. And like one of the nice motifs from um, Sloterdijk's work on globalization in the world interior of capital that he develops from um, post-war Heidegger, so unfashionable choice, you know, um, is this idea of Gelassenheit. And Gelassenheit, you know, vaguely in English of just this releasement. And I, I think just this sense that we are we are already embarked, you know, on this particular kind of journey on spaceship earth to our own deaths you know um and that one can achieve a level of kind of releasement into this situation that it is possible to do that 
Um, but I think all of us have to, we have to inhabit our own struggles and that the, the tendency, which I, which I mean, everybody, every, every I, I don't know a single person who doesn't have a family member who has not been seduced by one of the very powerful conspiracy theories, which is going around at the moment. So, um, and also as somebody in my extended family who has, you know, believing Christians in their extended family, I can also see the power of the seductions of, of those stories there. So I don't think that there's any guarantee that one might go through a process of transformation to be able to fundamentally finally accept the world as it is and act in the world as it is in spite and because of how it is. And again, we come to this, this, this uh, meaning making and synthesis Mm. uh, Mm. and like I, for instance, when it comes to climate change, I, I mean, I'm actually of the opinion that I think the type of position that, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg uh, exemplifies is, is one which is ultimately not productive in terms of um, the kind of the, the climate position of we've all been bad boys, it's time to be punished. And and this, I can understand this. I mean, the, the sense of anger and frustration is 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 is, is very valid, mm. but um, the the story of you were all terrible <laughs> and we all doomed is it it, it it it's a, a discourse and language which is one which is not well equipped mm. to uh talk across boundaries mm. uh, and kind of angry hectoring and accusing is 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 one which is it doesn't match well with his desire for for meaning making and 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 storytelling and mm. coming back to discussion i had with david Cayley, you know we had this we were talking about climate science and there was mm. this really kind of yeah. nice nice point where we ended mm. up with well in a way it doesn't matter whether climate science is 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 real because you don't need that science to be able to reach a conclusion Yes, treat treating the world like a dumpster. Yes, is is a problematic and not a very good um, position to take. Right, like you don't actually need the climate science to reach a conclusion that um, having a more sustainable way of engaging with the world is yes. the right course of action. And a fundamental acceptance of limits. I think that's you know both both you and Kayla were drawing drawing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so, um, like, it strikes me that there, there is this need for trying to construct stories and um, finding ways which actually bridge these, these different kind of uh, ideational realms. Yes. Is, is, yes. And, 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 and also, I mean, one, one thing with conspiracy theorists is that there's this misapprehension that conspiracy theorists are kind of just stuck in this bubble of accepting whatever ever information they they get right but i mean actually a lot of them do 
a huge amount of research. Mm, hashtag research. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. You know, but like it's it's kind of you know digging a hole to China, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's that type of research. But then from that perspective, it's not like you just need more information because they will go and get more of the same information mm. that they have been accessing, right? It's it is also an implicit acceptance of the basic norms of Western reason, empirical methods, scepticism, all of those things, you know? But, but, I mean, but all of those things also get us to this point of then not being able to have the, have the tools of, of, of uh, dealing with, with things that we cannot know or cannot control. Like mm. I think closely connected to limits for me um, is, is also just coming to terms with limits of control, but then yes. also also limits of knowability. And so actually just accepting that, yeah, we're along we're along for the ride mm. is it's a really hard thing uh, to do. And how to reconcile oneself individually and collectively with the residue of experience that cannot be explained mm. yeah. um, or comprehended, I think is a really powerful challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking also about like what, like Ian McGilchrist in his kind of more English language would talk about sort of like left hemisphere, left hemisphere dominance, you know, that, there is this very powerful urge in Western thinking to like cut everything up under very bright lights um, and reduce it down to its like itty bitty bits. Um, and one of the things which has kind of been the um, the foreshortened limb here is this kind of whole other side of, of human experience and the power of the imagination and the power of the unconscious um, to put all of these things back together in their totality. And as much as I think that I don't think that Adorno and Horkheimer did a really bad job of it in the Dialectic of Enlightenment. It's a shame that that's one of their most famous books, isn't it? Because it's such a it's hot one mess. One of their worst. <laughs> one of their worst books. Um, but I can I can see in his own way that Marcuse is trying to do this in Eros and Civilization again. You know, and if I wanted to put to put my finger on it, that that the Frankfurt School were really correct, I think, to have their critique of instrumentality. Um, and naive empiricism and to say that this has actually done a huge damage to us, to, it's done a huge damage to, to humanity in the name of reason, um, but that there is actually, there are ways out of it. And, and I think that this power of synthesis and certainly power of imagination and creativity um, and the power of the unconscious recurs back to us now in the 2020s. And for me, this is one of the things which I still find um, in spite of its flaws, like still really like resonant um, about one of the things that Marcuse was insisting on. And I think also some of the some of the humanist critiques of techniques from the 1970s that um, you and I have both been increasingly uh, interested in um, have pointed back to to this. You know, um, so maybe as a way of of, of uh, wrapping up, one question we haven't directly addressed but i've been thinking about a lot is precisely this so what does it mean that there are these thinkers 
from say i mean really when it comes to technology from like 1930s 1940s mm. yes. the 1970s 1980s who are providing this kind of insight and analysis of you know which is incredibly insightful in terms of understanding the the present moment so i'm trying mm. to figure out like what to do with this so I, like the were they simply so prescient or is this kind of like the equivalent of the climate scientists who said in the 70s and 80s hey if you guys keep doing this in in 30 40 years we're going to be completely screwed and now we're completely screwed so like what what does it mean that we have to turn to this you know this the, the people from these uh periods of, of roughly from the interwar period through to post world mm. war ii it strikes me yes. at least one thing there that's happening is a much more immediate sense of what happens when things really go wrong absolutely yeah. it, <laughs> that's you know, right it, it strikes me that there's this real and we're not safe think, from that yeah no no but coming back to the everything is serious yeah. and, and, and yes and nothing is important right it's is, is I feel, you know, like Stephen Walt has this great argument about American foreign policy, which is basically after the end of the Cold War, it stops being serious because I don't mm. have a, an actual proper um, external threat to worry about. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and so maybe we've now had such a degree of security and safety comparatively, right? Yes. That we've collectively and also especially those in positions of leadership and power yeah. have lost a sense of what things looking like when they go wrong yeah. really, yeah. really entails, right? So like people like Timothy, I find people like Yasha Monk, um, Timothy Snyder, I think I find a really difficult one, but, you know, they, they talk about like the sky is falling in because Trump got elected and, and all yep. this type of stuff. And it's, yeah, it's a real lack of sense of scale and of what things really do actually look like when um, the world falls apart. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in that. I think it's really interesting that, like, um, the generation of, of exiles, especially, like, broadly speaking, not just Marxist and Marxian, but, like, leftist Jewish intellectuals, um, who had to flee Europe because of the rise of the Nazis were really forced to reckon with this. Um, one of the kind of great shames for me about um, Horkheimer's being so factional was that, that there were all of these people that, who were kind of factionally related to Mannheim at Frankfurt who were doing really brilliant work about this. So, you know, like the other superb work um, extrapolating from the implications and arguing with and against the implications of civilization and its discontents is Norbert Elliott's civilizing process. And I think one of the things that he was really insistent on with his most meticulous and patient historical sociology is that when he got to America in the 50s and 60s, you know, all of American sociology behaved as if society was only something which had happened in the last 30 years in America. Um, and with the succession of conversations that you've been having with the interlocutors, I think we really, we need to repudiate the categories of social science and discourse that are kind of post-war North Atlantic and moreover neoliberal in our thinking. So all of these things, and it doesn't matter, you know, like when I looked at 
um, the literature around conspiracy theories, it was extraordinarily self-referential because it was written by and for a North American audience only to deal with the post-war period. When we had all of this data from what had happened in the first half of the 20th century in Europe, which all of those American scholars were avoiding, Likewise, you know, it's not the Eurabia thesis and it's not a thousand-year Reich, but one of the things that Norbert Elias manages to kind of like give back to us through the methods of historical sociology is a thousand-year sense of who, like, we in the West are as a civilization and culture. Um, so I think that kind of repossession can, we need to think afresh about what our categories are and we need to draw much longer temporalities. I see this a lot with the um, the return with like middle brow literatures of history of everything. Like, you know, Jared Diamond and Yuval Noah Harari, like for better and for worse, they've at least forced us to think on an 11,000 year timescale since the end of the last ice age. And certainly like personally, I feel a lot of inspiration from what um, James Scott and David Graeber have been trying to do with it. So on a personal note for me, now, whenever, um, whenever I write about things, I try to have the 11,000-year timescale of the last ice age and then the past 1,000 years in the slow rise of capitalism and transition out of feudalism as my two temporalizations. you know? So those two longer modernities, if you like, um, already has a transformative effect on our own categories and thinking and, like, renders parochial a lot of these North American categories we've been working with, which is the other thing because, like, the United States has so dominated knowledge production since the post-war period that we are still, we are all so American in our thinking in a way which I am um, increasingly feeling very hostile because I know that I too have internalised the cultural imaginary and the categories of the, the American project, even though that I've known since 2001 that they're entirely bogus. So it leaves me in a very strange space here, you know, like... Um, as someone who's trying to kind of repossess their own past um, as, as, a, as, as a white Australian as well, living in this kind of strange multicultural country, but also as someone who's like far too much internalised all of these categories which no longer work and no longer make sense of the world, you know? Well, in the one thing which perhaps makes us particularly vulnerable as, as, as Australians is, is certainly one thing that Australia and America both share is this really kind of problematic kind of a historical way of understanding yes yes, yes. understanding the world and yes. this this inability to locate the 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 countries which have come out of um uh colonization and, and settlers um, within the uh, what existed before, yes, absolutely, and, absolutely, and, yeah. And I've really, it's just, it's, and it's really interesting how long it takes to deprogram. And, <laughs> yes, but, but so much yes. of it. I, I remember I was uh, in in Kyoto and talking with some people from yeah from from Kyoto, and they were talking about me being from Tokyo, and they're saying, yeah, but uh -huh. you know, Tokyo is such a young city yeah and i was thinking about this as an australian yeah 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 <laughs> and so the, the time scale was 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 won it completely differently and that's right melbourne was a tent city in 1835 right yeah um and one thing i've been thinking about a lot in the context of what i've been uh 
talking through with with people in these conversations is thinking about Japan and the way that, on the one level, that you know we need these um, uh, other ways of uh, understanding which go beyond these kind mm. of standard yes. uh, North American Western frames. Yes. Yeah. But then at the same stage, also, and this is you know something which really came through with us when I was talking with uh, LM Sarcassus is really points of similarity because mm. in in East Asia especially you see the kind of the Heideggerian logic of inframing mm-hmm. to you know in full effect Japan is head to toe in concrete. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. it is it you know it it it's um cultural and historical legacies which point in terms of a different way of being and engaging with the world certainly yeah. were not strong yeah. enough to uh, resist that. But I think, you know, one thing is that there are hints and clues everywhere of a different way of thinking. And I feel like in North America, like especially in our condition in Australia, yes, it's harder to dig and see those alternate clues right they're there because you know yes. like the uh the traditional owners of, of australia really had a different way of understanding technologies understanding their engagement with the world and with time yes, yes. but it, it, there's there's not so much cultural recognition of that in a serious way still well it's <laughs> it's starting now <laughs> Um, I, and I see, I mean, I see it much more with my students, uh, my, the, the vast majority of my students this year in my master's class are willing to start with the presumption that, um, indigenous people n- knew something and ha- and have a mode of existence and continue to exist. Mm. Um, but the removal of those implicitly white supremacist assumptions, um, es- especially in the linearization of progress, um, and the demise of indigenous peoples, like getting steamrolled by, you know, Western superiority, like. I wouldn't be able to have that conversation with people probably a lot of people even of our generation and certainly of our parents generation as well so these conversations are just starting but i'm really interested like you know you're so right like it's so helpful to start thinking about japan in its imminence you know as as industrial modernity which had its own transition out of feudalism not in relation to the west not as like a case study that serves um, and China too. And I think that's like, um, there's two podcasts, which I, um, I've got subscribed to in relation to China. One of them I really hate and one of them I like. The one I hate is China talk because it's all of these like American China bros there. And they're basically trying to like, look at whatever f- about China kind of like fits the American frame, which is, you know, threat and opportunity, securitization, et cetera. Um, and the other one's the little red podcast, um, run out of, um, I think Macquarie or UNSW here. Um, which always seems to be looking at, at China as China as something which is like not only non-Western or in relation to America and geopolitical, but like in its imminence. And um, because we've been, you know, even as like a, a piddly nothing little country like Australia in relative terms, because of our powerful alignment with the British Empire and then post-war America, we've been inhabiting this very powerful cultural um, imaginary, which has actually pre- presented prevented us from beginning to understand all of these wonderful and terrifying and complex amazing kind of realities that they're out there you know like 
Um, and I think that's, yeah, that's definitely, I think part of the way forward, like, you know, well, I mean, if like, I know you like psychoanalytics, right? So maybe as a, <laughs> to, to kind of wrap it up, like perhaps one of the reasons there's so much emphasis on the war in the Ukraine mm. is this is perhaps the dying gasp of yeah. uh, the West and Europe yes. being at the center of the world. Yes. And in terms of uh, moving towards away from a unipolar order to some type of multipolar order or some type of order in which polarity is of limited mm. use. Yeah. Uh, this is really about decentering North America, but also yeah, decentering yeah. the mm. kind of the sort of dominant Western frames. And, and, you know, so maybe not only just in terms of a geopolitical level, but also mm. on a kind of a more, ideational or cultural level in terms of what is happening in in the heartland yeah. being uh, the center of our concern and imaginary perhaps this will also be part of what ukraine comes to to represent yeah absolutely maybe if we take the 500 year view like you know the whole north atlantic project in america was just like a big distraction you know very compelling because of Hollywood and, and post-war cultural production, but um, ultimately never, never what, I mean, you know, early 20th century geopolitics clearly saw, you know, Eurasia as, as the center of the world. And, you know, I mean, even, even Obama's play for the, for the North Pacific is just like one last gasp of relevance for, for the North Atlantic really, isn't it? That whole assemblage. Well, I mean, I think like it just in one way or another, all of this is really connected to how we make, how we try to make sense and how we try to place narrative mm. and find ways of, of meaning making mm. in the context, not only of this excess of, of kind of data and information, but also this excess of experience, which is then being amplified and sped up. Mm. Right? And, mm, mm, mm. and so I think a lot of what we've been talking about has been in different ways, trying to grasp and reconcile how to, to to try and comprehend a set of experience and realities which are not really matching with the frames that we've been using and taught to to understand. That was my conversation with PC, recorded in April 2022. It has been produced with support from a grant by the Toshiba International Foundation and was edited by Peter Van Hoysen. Please subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series and check other conversations. For more information, see my website, christopherhobson.net, and my substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com. My email is info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Imperfect World with Christopher Hobson.